Good morning, my beloved church. I want to, before I begin this morning, I just want to pause to say, uh, to offer my appreciation for Ellis, uh, for his uh, word uh, last week. You realize, don't you, how blessed we are to have the preaching bench that we have in this church? Every one of them brings a great word. It doesn't matter who you're going to find up there. It's going to be a good message from the Lord. Last week, I got a chance to sneak away for a birthday trip, a golf junket of a lifetime. For those of you who are golfers, you'll appreciate it. I got to play Spyglass Hill. Uh, for those of not who you not who wouldn't care, couldn't care less. But it was a big deal for me, so I'm grateful that I had the chance uh, to do that. Uh, today we're continuing in our journey through the story, but I want to say that next week we're going to take a brief pause, starting in, uh, next week, for Advent. And uh, in the sense that we've been kind of doing the 30,000-foot view of Scripture through the story, and you understand that's what we're doing, right? We're trying to help us to see not just tiny little pieces, but the grand landscape of God's God's story. Uh, And so we're we're looking at great themes and great landmarks and great characters that tie the whole thing together. But for Advent, we're going to go deep. So we're going to do something we've never done before. During Advent, we're going to focus every Advent sermon on the same passage of Scripture out of Colossians chapter 1. It's the most majestic uh, proclamation of who Jesus Christ is that you will find in Scripture. And so we are going to dig in deep for those four weeks together. Five weeks, actually. And we are going to do it by asking questions that the text speaks to. The great longings of many human hearts, as a matter of fact, we're calling this the joy for every longing heart. Joy for every longing heart. And we're going to talk, uh, ask these questions. What is God like? What does the future hold? Does the church matter? Uh, is God with us? And is there any hope? Those are, the, those are the longings of every human heart. So we're going to try to answer those. It'd be a great time to bring a friend uh, as we begin the, the season of Christmas, the season of Advent together. So that's what we start next week. But one more week together now, and then, of course, we'll pick up the story on the, uh, on the other end of uh, at, in, beginning in January again. Some of the greatest stories in human experience revolve around people that from all outward appearances are least likely, least qualified to do the great things that they end up doing. I mean, history is replete with those stories, isn't it? For instance, you, you want to kick the English out of France. Sorry, Ellis, but you, they did want that. So who will we hire to lead our armies? How about a teenage girl named Joan, Right? Or who shall we select to lead our nation that will hold us together during a great civil war? How about a a man who was described by one person and it was repeated again and again as lean and ugly in every way? We come to the the greatest conflagration in human history, the World War II. Whom shall we select as our leader for this nation? How about a president in a wheelchair? And for his counterpart, how about a portly, alcoholic, uh, cigar-smoking, grouchy-looking guy who didn't have a very good speaking voice? (laughs) Churchill got applause and FDR did not. I don't know what to do with... I don't know what to do with that, but I'll just just chalk it up to the 9 o'clock crowd, frankly... 
Or to get down to matters that really, really impact us, you want a quarterback that will lead the Seahawks to successive uh, you know, Super Bowls. How about the guy that the, pro, that the experts say is too small to pray, play pro football, right? Yeah, I knew that would get him. Last week in our journey through God's story, Ellis was teaching us uh, about what it's like to want to be the cool kids. Remember that song, Cool Kids? I've added it to my playlist. I'm sure all of you went home and did the same thing. Um, But they, the, the nation of Israel wanted to be like the other nations. They were tired of having God as their king. They wanted a human king, and they asked for that. So God gave them what they wanted. And, and they got a guy who really did look the part, Saul. He was tall and dark and handsome. He looked very kingly. Didn't take very long for us, though, to discover that he was deeply flawed. And uh, so last week we were reading the story of this guy with all the potential in the world who was deeply, deeply flawed. So how, our moment of accountability, how many read your, uh, read your chapter out of the story last week? See, you guys are so good. You are so good. No pastor has ever been more proud of his congregation. Um, well, this week we are going to discover that God gets fed up with Saul's arrogance, with Saul's disobedience. Uh, God gets fed up and he says, all right, I'm going to choose another. And we are going to watch as, as God chooses a most unlikely candidate to be the next king of Israel. And really, it's, he's a kid. He chooses a kid. He wasn't a cool kid, but he turns out to be a great kid. A, a great, great kid. And if you've ever felt like an outsider, if you've ever felt like a nobody like an also ran, like a loser. If you've ever felt like that, then you are going to love this story. The prophet has just given Saul the news that he is being rejected by God as king. Um, and, and Samuel uh, is brokenhearted about this because this was the guy that he anointed, this was the guy that he prayed for, that he trained, that he tried to mentor, but who went off the rails. So Samuel's just given him the news, but the Lord says, you don't have time to mope. You've got work to do. So we pick up the story in 1 Samuel chapter 16. I'm going to read an abbreviated, abridged version of it. You'll see it on the text in front of you. But this is 1 Samuel 16, 1, if you want to turn to your scriptures. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king of Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab, And had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shema pass by. But Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. 
But Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. This is the word of the Lord. So Samuel goes to Bethlehem. We do take note of this as we're getting ready for Advent. That is kind of an important little town. He goes to Bethlehem and he goes to meet with Jesse. Now you do remember Jesse, right? He's the grandson of what woman? Ruth. We met her two weeks ago. He's the grandson of Ruth. And we begin to see how God is pulling this story together for us. So, so Samuel goes to visit Jesse, the grandson of Ruth. And, uh, and he lines up all of Jesse's boys and trots them in front of him one at a time. When Eliab, the eldest, steps in front of Samuel, he says to himself, Ah, oh, this has got to be the guy. Um, for one thing, he was the eldest. And in those days of primogeniture, that's what it meant. Uh, the, the, the son, the eldest son, always had the, the, the more power, more right, more of the share of the estate. And it was assumed he was going to be the next family leader. That's what they did. In addition to that, we, he was also tall and good-looking, just like Saul. And of course, that worked out so well for them. Why not try it again? But God says, nope, this isn't the guy. So uh, they trot the next one across, Abinadab. That's a name that you might want to t- tuck away when your grandchildren are coming along. Suggest that as a, a possible name for a grandson. Abinadab, Abinadab, Abinadab. Again, the Lord says, no, this isn't the guy. And then Shema. And then, so one at a time, seven sons right across in front of him. Seven sons with great potential. Seven sons that look good. And every time the Lord says, nope, this isn't the one. And verse 7 gives us a glimpse of what was going on in God's heart. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at, we read. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks, say it with me. At, at the heart. God wasn't interested in the tallest, the eldest, the most charismatic, the best looking. He wasn't interested in any of the things that we usually look for in a leader. So what was he interested in? Let's continue the reading. Verse 11. So Samuel asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There's still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him We will not sit down until he arrives. Wow. Hope he was close. (laughs) So he sent and had him brought in. He was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. Seven strapping young men standing there, but none of them is the guy. And finally Samuel said, is this it? I mean, are all, is this all of them? And, uh, and uh, Jesse said, well, no, there, there, there's one more, but he can't be the one you want. I mean, he's, he's the youngest. He, he has the, uh, the, the low son on the totem pole job of taking care of the sheep. Bring him, Samuel says. And so onto the stage pops this young shepherd. He's clueless. He hasn't got an idea what's going on. He's the runt of the litter. Uh, He he gets the dirt jobs. He gets the hand-me-down clothes. He gets all the abuse that the youngest of eight boys would get from the seven elder brothers. But wow, does the scene change when he makes his way onto the stage. We are told he was ruddy. He was red-faced, probably from the wind or the sun, but 
there was just something vital about him. Life kind of oozed out of him. And to everyone's surprise, the Lord says, of this youngster, this runt, he's the one. He's the guy. And, uh, and so Samuel has him kneel down before him and pours oil on his head. And for the first time in God's story, we hear his name. For the first time, it's been great storytelling after him. He's been holding back, holding back, holding back. And so for the first time, we hear his name. From that day on, the spirit of Yahweh came upon, say it, David, David, David in power. And Samuel then went to Ramah. Notice that they have no idea what this anointing is for. Samuel knows, but no one else knows what's going on here. Why is the prophet of God, the prophet who works with Saul, the king, what is he doing here with this young boy pouring oil on his head? No word of king is mentioned. It would have been probably suicidal to have done so. And we find out for sure later on how suicidal it would have been. In fact, the last line of the story that I just read says that when he was done, Samuel just got up and put the cork back in his anointing horn and went home. Do you see that? Then Samuel went, left and went home, went to Ramah. It's kind of funny. David's kneeling there. He's got oily hair and jealous brothers standing around him and Samuel just walks away. We have no idea what this is for. No idea what is going on here. No idea that they have just witnessed the anointing of the next king of Israel. But that's what just took place. This unlikely red-faced kid named David. And the path ahead for David is going to be a hard one and a long one, isn't it? I mean, the, the most immediate obstacle is a big chunk of man from Philistia named what? Goliath, yeah. You'll love that story. It's one of the most beloved, and you'll read that one again. My favorite part is where we read at the end there that David ran toward the battle line. He didn't wait for it to come to him. He ran. He couldn't help himself. I love that part. But there's, so we got that ahead of us. Uh, then he's got Saul, crazy Saul, who tries to stick him to the wall with a spear, not once, but twice. He's got that lying ahead of him. But Sooner or later, David is going to become the king of this nation. It's a long way off. But for now, he is just a shepherd boy with oily hair on his knees before the Lord. So how did this kid become the greatest king of Israel? As I was reading through this passage, there are two things that jump out at me. I want to share those with you, okay? First of all, the anointing. Would you say that? Anointing. I love that word. Samuel was told to fill his horn with oil and go to Bethlehem. In the Old Testament, every time you see the word oil, think Holy Spirit. You know, we've been talking about the red, the the scarlet thread, right? The the appearances of the second person of the Trinity, the Son, uh, every once in a while in Scripture from beginning to end. Well, actually, this is a scarlet thread appearance of the third person of the Trinity, this is, how the Holy, this is how the Old Testament gives us a hint of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's, it's oil. So when you see oil, when you see anointing, uh, understand it really. It, they didn't believe the oil was magical. They, they believed like we believe about baptism. That in that act, in that sacramental moment of pouring out of oil, pouring out of water for a baptism, it was the pouring out of the Spirit upon someone to empower them for the work that they had been called to. 
And notice, this is confirmed because of what we read in the text. After David is anointed, we read that from that day, the Spirit of the Lord came over David in power. Again, it's going to be years before he assumes the throne. But from that day, David walked in the anointing of the Spirit. And this explains how a shepherd boy can defeat the great champion of the Philistines. This explains how a shepherd boy can become the great military leader of King Saul, the greatest by far. And it explains how when even Saul became murderously paranoid, David refused every temptation to steal his throne or his life. And he had opportunity to do both. Why? Because he walked in the anointing of the Spirit from that day on. And the point is made even more powerfully by contrast when we read the very next verse that comes in chapter 16. The very next verse reads, Now the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul. Do you see the starkness of that? So here comes the Spirit on David. Why? Because the Spirit has been taken away from Saul. And we need a new leader. This is something that is really important for us to understand about the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit in the Old Testament was given to certain people for a certain time, usually for a certain job, and then it was taken away. Given for a time, and then withdrawn, and we see it happen again and again. That's what's different between the Old and the New Testament, because when we come to the New Testament, at Pentecost we discover that the Holy Spirit was given, not just to a few, and not just for a time, but to all disciples of Jesus forever. I know we talked a lot about this last summer when we were in the book of Acts, but you know, Presbyterians can hardly talk about the Holy Spirit enough. We don't talk about the Spirit very much, and we could talk about Him more. Think about this. If you belong to Christ, then His Spirit, the Spirit of Pentecost, the same Spirit that fell upon David as the oil fell upon his head, that Spirit empowers you. You have the same anointing as David. If you walk in that anointing, if you walk in faith that the Spirit of Christ lives in you and empowers you, that whoever you are, whatever you look like, however gifted or ungifted you might be, God can do great things through you. You may not know what that calling is going to be. Like David, it might be years ahead of you. But the anointing of God is irrevocable. Let me say it again. The anointing of God is irrevocable. So walk in the power of that spirit. The spirit that makes runt boys into mighty kings. So that's one thing that I see in this passage. Here's the other reason why I think God chose this unlikely candidate. It's because David had something God loved. What was that? A heart. He had a great heart for God. When the Lord rejected Saul, Samuel gave him bad news. And here's what he said. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people. And the inference we draw, of course, is since you are not a man who has a heart after the Lord, God is going to find one who is. And remember what we read just earlier when Samuel stood in front of Eliab, the eldest son of Jesse. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The heart. Say heart. The word appears five, more than 500 times in the Bible. 
It's an enormously important idea. And when you read the word heart, you are, what you're talking about is the, 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 the spiritual and moral center of a person. It's not the way that we use the word today. When we talk about my heart, that, we're talking about feelings, we're talking about emotions, all the stuff guys love. But that's not what we're talking about here. That's not what the Bible says, not mainly. When the Bible uses the word heart, it's talking not about emotions, it's talking about motivation. When you read heart, you're talking about motivation, core convictions, what drives you to do what you do. If your heart belonged to God, that meant that your deepest longing was to live for God, to obey God, to please God. When we read that David was a man after God's own heart, what it's saying is the primary motivation in David's life was to please God. Now that does not mean that he was not perfect. As we will read next week, one of the great disappointments of David is the the sin that he commits against the Lord, against Bathsheba, against Uriah. He failed horribly. It is an It's embarrassing and painful to see how this great man could do something so awful. We're reminded again of the corrupting power of power. But even when he fell, David's first instinct, we discover, his first instinct was to beg God to repair that broken heart. You heard the text written, read earlier. Uh, Ellis read it as part of our confession. It comes from Psalm 51. Psalm 51 was written by David after he committed... Uh, adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband murdered. He wrote this psalm when he was called to accounts by Nathan the prophet. And it is the cry of his heart to have him restored before the Lord. Listen to verse 10 one more time. Create in me, read it, a pure heart, O God. Create in me a pure heart, O God, he cries out, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Do you hear the cry of him? He's saying, that which you gave me when I was anointed. Oh God, please don't let the sin that I have committed take that away from me. Create a new heart, a clean heart in me. Give that spirit back to me. Don't take your Holy Spirit away from me. Do you hear the longing of his heart? He knew that after his terrible sin, David had his greatest need was to restore his God-centered heart once again. The question this story begs to ask every one of us here today, then, is do you have a heart for God? Isn't that the question of the story for us? Do you have a heart for God? Is following and pleasing and obeying God the center of your life or not? Is it the deepest longing to be the person that God has created you to be? Jesus was asked, what is the great commandment? You remember his response. The greatest command, he said, is to love God with all your heart. When I say this, I'm not saying that we expect you to be perfect. Of course you will not be perfect. I'm not asking that. What I'm asking is, do you have a heart that longs primarily for God, is the primary motivation in your life to please God? Or is God just one of the many interests in your life? One of the many channels to which you can flick. you got hundreds of them. There's a God channel in your life, but there's so many other things. Just one of the things to distract you. 
You are the only one who knows the answer to that question. If you look at your life and you say, honestly, I don't think that I do have a heart for God in that way. I don't think that He is the centerpiece of the motivations that drive me. You might say, the, my heart really is for my family. That's the center of my life. Or my heart is for making money. Or my heart is for pursuing pleasure. And if that's your honest answer to yourself, you don't need to tell me, but the Spirit knows, then this is going to be a very discouraging message. Because you're going to think, gosh, I'm not like David. I don't have a heart like David. I, 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 I just don't, I don't feel that way about my faith. So it's hopeless for me. I could never have a heart like that. So let me give you some gospel then. Some good news. Do you know where the heart for God in David came from? It came from God. The heart for David, the heart for God that David had, it came from God. It was a gift of God. It is a gift of God to you too. Ezekiel 36 We read the prophet as he's speaking for God, saying these things to his people. I will give you, God speaking, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. That's what God longs to do. Having a heart for God then does not mean beating our own heart into submission. It means surrendering our heart, surrendering the center of our life to God and saying, will you please renew it? Please restore it. Please replace it. Please transplant it. That's what God does. Isn't that good news? That's his part. Now, let me tell you what our part is because we have a part too. It's always the way it is with Scripture. God part, our part. God starts, but we respond. We must nurture that new God-given heart. We must nurture it. If we don't, if we don't listen to and respond to the promptings, the urgings of God, then that heart that he gives us can wither away. Or it can be transplanted by an entirely different heart. And do you know who teaches us that lesson in this story? That our heart can wither if we do not give attention to it? Exactly right. It is Saul. It is Saul, King Saul, who teaches that. And let me show you where. It's back in chapter 10. Saul, when he was first being called to be king, he was reluctant, and who wouldn't be? I mean, what? this is an audacious thing to, to lay upon this man. Samuel's trying to persuade him. He said, God has called you. God will equip you. God will allow you. And Saul was very reticent. He didn't know. He didn't know if he could do this thing. And then we read this verse, 1 Samuel 10, 9. As Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed Saul's heart. I'd never seen that before. God changed Saul's heart. God gave Saul the heart that he needed to be his man. God gave Saul the heart he needed to be his king. And in the early days of his reign, we see what happened when Saul's heart really belonged to God. He was a powerful force for God. He did great things. He conquered great enemies because his heart was in the place where God wanted it to be. But over the time, he stopped hearing the promptings of God. He stopped paying attention to the promptings that came through Samuel the prophet. He started to believe his own press releases. He started to lead and to live as if he were God. And that God-changed heart of his began to wither and ultimately went dark. 
One of the things we believe as Presbyterians is that every prompting of the heart starts with God. I don't understand how anyone can believe otherwise. We don't start by leaning out to God. We don't even have the capacity to do so. It is God who leans toward us first. Has not the story told us that already? God who appears. God who creates. God who calls. All God's initiative. All promptings start with God. His Holy Spirit calling us and wooing us and beckoning us. But listen. It is what we do with that prompting that determines our usefulness to God. Let me say it again. It is what we do with the promptings of God in our life that determines our usefulness to Him. The other day I saw a friend at a funeral. She had not been in church for quite a while. She was embarrassed about things that were going on in her life. That's often the case. People disappear at the time they most need to be encircled by the, the body. And so she'd just kind of gone off the radar. But she was touched by the experience, touched by the warmth of the welcome she received from her friends at Chapel Hill. And she said, I'm going to be back this weekend. Guess what? She wasn't. And so I called her in the next week. I said, you told me you were going to be at church. And you didn't show up. She said, no. I I said, "Let let me tell you something. Let me tell you something I have learned. When we continue to ignore the promptings of God, we eventually become deaf to them. Do you understand what I'm saying? When we continue to ignore the promptings of God, we eventually become deaf to them. The first time we sense God saying, I want you to follow me. Or, I want you to go to church faithfully. Or, I want you to invite that person to go to church. Or, I want you to start a life group. The first time that we sense God saying, I want you to lead your family spiritually. Or I want you to start tithing your income. Or I want you to stop sleeping with your girlfriend or your boyfriend. The first time we hear that, it, it comes across as a clarion bell. We know what we're hearing. We know that we're being spoken to by the Holy Spirit. But if we ignore it, if we disobey the clear promptings of God towards our heart, Pretty soon, that voice becomes more muted and more muted and more muted. And we become deaf to it. It's not that the Holy Spirit is no longer speaking to our hearts. It's just that we have trained ourselves to ignore His voice. We have tuned our hearts to follow the voices of others. Saul heard God's prompting in his heart. And he stopped listening. David heard God's promptings and he never stopped listening even when he was deeply broken. And that was the difference between the two men. And so it raises the question one more time. Do you have a heart for God? Do you listen for the promptings of His Spirit? Do you walk in His anointing? Do you care about the things God cares for? Do you serve and give to the things God loves? Does your checkbook and your calendar and your friends and activities suggest that you are passionate for the Lord? Or is God just one more of your worthwhile activities? The American church, and I dare say Chapel Hill, has 
plenty of indifferent Christians. People who were once excited about their new heart. Once excited about the new passion that God instilled in them when he saved them. And they realized their great salvation. But have now gotten distracted and divided. And their hearts are withering. And there are some here today who would say the same. Could I just tell you, it's not too late. God can pour the, uh, the refreshing oil of his spirit upon that withered heart and bring it back to life. Bring it back to vitality in a moment. Because he's still looking for men and women and young people and children whose hearts are his, who long to be his. Are you that person? As God looks at your heart, what would he pronounce upon you? Are you one of the seven? Or would he look at you like he looked at that young shepherd boy and said, Ah, a man, a woman, whose heart belongs to me. Lord, I ask that your spirit would do right now what we've just read. That you would prompt and provoke. You would prick our consciences and cause us to be honest about who we are before you. Cause us to be honest about whether or not you are truly the center of our life, the center of our motivation, or one of our many distractions in this life. Lord, I pray for a, an anointing of your Spirit upon these people. That to the man, to the woman, we will walk here from this day determined to surrender to you our hearts. Determined to receive the refreshing pouring out of your oil, your Spirit, that our withered souls, our withered hearts might be brought to life and vitality once again, and that we might be of use to you. We cannot do this without you. And the last thing we need is people who are pretending. So help us to be yours, truly yours, really yours. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like us to close by singing just a cappella, that chorus I'll bet you're familiar with, I Surrender All. I surrender all, I surrender all, all to Thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender. Let's Hold our hands up as if we are surrendering and let's sing it and let me hear the harmonies and let's lift this as our closing hymn to the Lord. Here we go. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to Thee, my blessed Savior.
The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his perfect peace, both now and forevermore. And whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and all of God's God-hearted people said, Amen. Amen.